0: THE COURSE OF THE WORLD'S HISTORY, SUBSECTION THREE. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. THE COURSE OF THE WORLD'S HISTORY SUBSECTION 3 History, in general, is therefore the development of spirit in time, as nature is the development of the idea in space. If, then, we cast a glance over the world's history generally, we see a vast picture of changes and transactions of infinitely manifold forms of peoples, states, individuals, in unresting succession. Everything that can enter into and interest the soul of man, all our sensibility to goodness, beauty, and greatness, is called into play. On every hand... Aims are adopted and pursued, which we recognize, whose accomplishment we desire. We hope and fear for them. In all these occurrences and changes we behold human action and suffering predominant, everywhere something akin to ourselves, and therefore everywhere something that excites our interest for or against Sometimes it attracts us by beauty, freedom, and rich variety, sometimes by energy, such as enables even vice to make itself interesting. Sometimes we see the more comprehensive mass of some general interest advancing with comparative slowness, and subsequently sacrificed to an infinite complication of trifling circumstances, and so dissipated, into atoms then again with a vast expenditure of power a trivial result is produced while from what appears unimportant a tremendous issue proceeds on every hand there is the motliest throng of events drawing us within the circle of its interest and when one combination vanishes, another immediately appears in its place. The general thought, the category which first presents itself in this restless mutation of individuals and peoples, existing for a time and then vanishing, is that of change at large. The sight of the ruins of some ancient sovereignty, directly leads us to contemplate this thought of change in its negative aspect. What traveller among the ruins of Carthage, of Palmyra, Persepolis, or Rome, has not been stimulated to reflections on the transiency of kingdoms and men, and to sadness at the thought of a vigorous and rich life now departed? A sadness which does not expend itself on personal losses and the uncertainty of one's own undertakings, but is a disinterested sorrow at the decay of a splendid and highly cultured national life. But the next consideration which allies itself with that of change is that change, while it imports dissolution, involves at the same time the rise of a new life, that while death is the issue of life, life is also the issue of death. This is a grand conception, one which the oriental thinkers attained and which is perhaps the highest in their metaphysics. In the idea of metempsychosis, we find it evolved in its relation to individual existence, but a myth more generally known is that of the phoenix, as a type of the life of nature, eternally preparing for itself its funeral pile, and consuming itself upon it, but so that from its ashes is produced the new, renovated, fresh life. But this image is only Asiatic, Oriental, not Occidental. Spirit, consuming the envelope of its existence does not merely pass into another envelope, nor rise rejuvenescent from the ashes of its previous form. It comes forth exalted, glorified, a purer spirit. It certainly makes war upon itself, consumes its own existence, but in this very destruction it works up that existence into a new form and each successive phase becomes in its turn a material, working on which it exalts itself to a new grade. If we consider spirit in this aspect, regarding its changes not merely as rejuvenescent transitions, that is, returns to the same form, but rather as manipulations of itself by which it multiplies the material for future endeavors, we see it exerting itself in a variety of modes and directions, developing its powers, and gratifying its desires in a variety which is inexhaustible, because every one of its creations, in which it has already found gratification, meets it anew as material, and is a new stimulus to plastic activity. The abstract conception of mere change gives place to the thought of spirit manifesting, developing, and perfecting its powers in every direction which its manifold nature can follow. What powers it inherently possesses we learn from the variety of products and formations which it originates. In this pleasurable activity it has to do only with itself as involved with the conditions of mere nature, internal and external, it will indeed meet in these not only opposition and hindrance, but will often see its endeavors thereby fail, often sink under the complications in which it is entangled either by nature or by itself. But in such case it perishes in fulfilling its own destiny and proper function, and even thus exhibits the spectacle of self-demonstration as spiritual activity. The very essence of spirit is activity. It realizes its potentiality, makes itself its own deed, its own work, and thus it becomes an object to itself, contemplates itself as an objective existence. Thus is it, with the spirit of a people, it is a spirit having strictly defined characteristics, which erects itself into an objective world that exists and persists in a particular religious form of worship, customs, constitution, and political laws, in the whole complex of its institutions, in the events and transactions that make up its history. That is its work, that is what this particular nation, is. Nations are what their deeds are. Every Englishman will say, we are the men who navigate the ocean, and have the commerce of the world, to whom the East Indies belong, and their riches, who have a parliament, juries, etc. The relation of the individual to that spirit is that he appropriates to himself this substantial existence, that it becomes his character and capability, enabling him to have a definite place in the world, to be something. For he finds the being of the people to which he belongs an already established, firm world, objectively present to him, with which he has to incorporate himself. In this its work, therefore, its world the spirit of the people enjoys its existence and finds its satisfaction a nation is moral virtuous vigorous while it is engaged in realizing its grand objects and defends its work against external violence during the process of giving to its purposes an object of existence The contradiction between its potential subjective being, its inner aim and life, and its actual being, is removed. It has attained full reality, has itself objectively present to it. But this having been attained, the activity displayed by the spirit of the people in question is no longer needed. It has its desire. THE NATION CAN STILL ACCOMPLISH MUCH IN WAR AND PEACE AT HOME AND ABROAD. BUT THE LIVING SUBSTANTIAL SOUL ITSELF MAY BE SAID TO HAVE CEASED ITS ACTIVITY. THE ESSENTIAL SUPREME INTEREST HAS CONSEQUENTLY VANISHED FROM ITS LIFE, FOR INTEREST IS PRESENT ONLY WHERE THERE IS OPPOSITION. THE NATION LIVES THE SAME KIND OF LIFE AS THE INDIVIDUAL when passing from maturity to old age, in the enjoyment of itself, in the satisfaction of being exactly what it desired and was able to attain. Although its imagination might have transcended that limit, it nevertheless abandoned any such aspirations as objects of actual endeavor. If the real world was less than favorable to their attainment, and restricted its aim by the conditions thus imposed. This mere customary life, the watch wound up and going on of itself, is that which brings on natural death. Custom is activity without opposition, for which, there remains only a formal duration in which the fullness and zest that originally characterized the aim of life is out of the question, a merely external sensuous existence which has ceased to throw itself enthusiastically into its object. Thus perish individuals, thus perish peoples by a natural death. And though the latter may continue in being, it is an existence without intellect or vitality, having no need of its institutions, because the need for them is satisfied, a political nullity and tedium. In order that a truly universal interest may arise, the spirit of a people must advance to the adoption of some new purpose. But whence can this new purpose originate? It would be a higher, more comprehensive conception of itself, a transcending of its principle. But this very act would involve a principle of a new order, a new national spirit. Such a new principle does, in fact, enter into the spirit of a people that has arrived at full development and self-realization. It dies not a simply natural death, for it is not a mere single individual, but a spiritual generic life. In its case, natural death appears to imply destruction through its own agency. The reason of this difference from the single natural individual is that the spirit of a people exists as a genus and consequently carries within it its own negation, in the very generality which characterizes it. A people can only die a violent death when it has become naturally dead in itself, as, for example, the German imperial cities, the German imperial constitution. It is not of the nature of the all-pervading spirit to die this merely natural death, it does not simply sink into the senile life of mere custom, but, as being a national spirit belonging to universal history, attains to the consciousness of what its work is. It attains to a conception of itself. In fact, it is world-historical, only insofar as a universal principle has lain in its fundamental element, in its grand aim, only so far is the work which such a spirit produces, a moral, political organization. If it be mere desires that impel nations to activity, such deeds pass over without leaving a trace, or their traces are only ruin and destruction. Thus, it was first Chronos, time, that ruled. The golden age, without moral products. And what was produced, the offspring of that Kronos, was devoured by it. It was Jupiter, from whose head Minerva sprang, and to whose circle of divinities belongs Apollo and the Muses, that first put a constraint upon time. And set a bound to its principle. Decadence. He is the political god who produced a moral work, the state. In the very element of an achievement, the quality of generality of thought is contained. Without thought, it has no objectivity. That is its basis. The highest point in the development of a people is this. To have gained a conception of its life and condition, to have reduced its laws, its ideas of justice and morality to a science. For in this unity of the objective and subjective lies the most intimate unity that spirit can attain to in and with itself. In its work it is employed in rendering itself an object of its own contemplation. But it cannot develop itself objectively in its essential nature except in thinking itself at this point then spirit is acquainted with its principles the general character of its acts but at the same time in virtue of its very generality This work of thought is different in point of form from the actual achievements of the national genius, and from the vital agency by which those achievements have been performed. We have then before us a real and an ideal existence of the spirit of the nation. If we wish to gain the general idea and conception of what the Greeks were, we find it in Sophocles and Aristophanes. In Thucydides and Plato. In these individuals the Greek spirit conceived and thought itself. This is the profounder kind of satisfaction which the spirit of a people attains, but it is ideal and distinct from its real activity. At such a time, therefore, we are sure to see a people finding satisfaction in the idea of virtue, putting talk about virtue, partly side by side with actual virtue, but partly in the place of it. On the other hand, pure universal thought, since its nature is universality, is apt to bring the special and spontaneous belief, trust, customary morality, to reflect upon itself and its primitive simplicity, to show up the limitation with which it is fettered, partly suggesting reasons for renouncing duties, partly itself demanding reasons, and the connection of such requirement with universal thought. And not finding that connection seeking to impeach the authority of duty generally, as destitute of a sound foundation. At the same time the isolation of individuals from each other and from the whole makes its appearance. Their aggressive selfishness and vanity, their seeking personal advantage and consulting this at the expense of the state at large, that inward principle in transcending its outward manifestations, is subjective also in form, namely, selfishness and corruption, in the unbound passions and egotistic interests of men. Zeus, therefore, who is represented as having put a limit to the devouring agency of time, and stayed this transiency by having established something inherently and independently durable, Zeus, and his race, are themselves swallowed up, and that, by the very power that produced them, the principle of thought, perception, reasoning, insight, derived from rational grounds and the requirement of such grounds. Time is the negative element in the sensuous world. Thought is the same negativity, but it is the deepest the infinite form of it, in which, therefore, all existence generally is dissolved. First, finite existence, determinate, limited form, but existence generally, in its objective character, is limited. It appears, therefore, as a mere datum, something immediate, authority, and is either intrinsically finite and limited, or presents itself as a limit. For the thinking subject, and its infinite reflection on itself. But first we must observe how the life which proceeds from death is itself, on the other hand, only individual life, so that, regarding the species as the real and substantial in this vicissitude, the perishing of the individual is a regress of the species into individuality, The perpetuation of the race is, therefore, none other than the monotonous repetition of the same kind of existence. Further, we must remark how perception, the comprehension of being by thought, is the source and birthplace of a new and, in fact, higher form, in a principle which, while it preserves, dignifies its material for thought is that universal, that species which is immortal, which preserves identity with itself. The particular form of spirit not merely passes away in the world by natural causes in time, but is annulled in the automatic, self-mirroring activity of consciousness. Because this annulling is an activity of thought, it is at the same time conservative and elevating in its operation. While, then, on the one side spirit annuls the reality, the permanence of that which it is, it gains on the other side the essence, the thought, the universal element of that which it only was, its transient conditions. Its principle is no longer that immediate import and aim, which it was previously, but the essence of that import and aim. The result of this process is then that spirit, in rendering itself objective and making this, its being, an object of thought, ON THE ONE HAND, DESTROYS THE DETERMINATE FORM OF ITS BEING, ON THE OTHER HAND, GAINS A COMPREHENSION OF THE UNIVERSAL ELEMENT WHICH IT INVOLVES, AND, THEREBY, GIVES A NEW FORM TO ITS INHERENT PRINCIPLE. IN VIRTUE OF THIS, THE SUBSTANTIAL CHARACTER OF THE NATIONAL SPIRIT HAS BEEN ALTERED, THAT IS, ITS PRINCIPLE HAS RISEN INTO ANOTHER, AND IN FACT, A HIGHER PRINCIPLE. IT IS OF THE HIGHEST IMPORTANCE IN APPREHENDING AND COMPREHENDING HISTORY TO HAVE AND TO UNDERSTAND THE THOUGHT INVOLVED IN THIS TRANSITION. THE INDIVIDUAL TRAVERSES AS A UNITY VARIOUS GRADES OF DEVELOPMENT AND REMAINS THE SAME INDIVIDUAL, IN LIKE MANNER ALSO DOES A PEOPLE, TILL THE SPIRIT WHICH IT EMBODIES REACHES THE GRADE OF UNIVERSALITY. In this point lies the fundamental, the ideal necessity of transition. This is the soul, the essential consideration of the philosophical comprehension of history. Spirit is essentially the result of its own activity. Its activity is the transcending of immediate, simple, unreflected existence, the negation of that existence, and the returning into itself. We may compare it with the seed, for with this the plant begins, yet it is also the result of the plant's entire life. But the weak side of life is exhibited in the fact that the commencement and the result are disjoined from each other. Thus also is it in the life of individuals and peoples. The life of a people ripens a certain fruit. Its activity aims at the complete manifestation of the principle which it embodies. But this fruit does not fall back into the bosom of the people that produced and matured it. On the contrary, it becomes a poison draft to it, That poison draft it cannot let alone, for it has an insatiable thirst for it. The taste of the draft is its annihilation, though at the same time the rise of a new principle. We have already discussed the final aim of this progression. The principles of the successive phases of spirit that animate the nations in a necessitated gradation, are themselves only steps in the development of the one universal spirit, which through them elevates and completes itself to a self-comprehending totality. While we are thus concerned exclusively with the idea of spirit, and in the history of the world regard everything as only its manifestation, we have, in traversing the past, however extensive its periods, only to do with what is present. For philosophy, as occupying itself with the true, has to do with the eternally present. Nothing in the past is lost for it, for the idea is ever-present. Spirit is immortal. With it, There is no past, no future, but an essential now. This necessarily implies that the present form of spirit comprehends within it all earlier steps. These have indeed unfolded themselves in succession, independently. But what spirit is, it has always been essentially. Distinctions are only the development of this essential nature. The life of the ever-present spirit is a circle of progressive embodiments, which looked at in one aspect still exist beside each other, and only as looked at from another point of view appear as past. The grades which spirit seems to have left behind it, it still possesses in the depths of its present. And Introduction to The Philosophy of History by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel Translated by J. Sibri This recording is in the public domain.